Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, the co-host of The Learning Curve, talking to you from beautiful, sunny Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, we're going to have a conversation about education. Of course, we will. But given the fact that this has been the week when uh, the Democrats have held its national convention, which for any party, uh, the two, it's the ceremonial announcement of who your president and VP will be. And so a lot of conversation of the last three days have taken place for the first time virtually. But education, of course, uh, find, found its way of popping up in different parts of the conversation, whether it was criminal justice reform, health, whether it was economics, but also education as we know it. So we're going to have a good time talking about that today. And I'm going to welcome, of course, the person who is my, bi my uh, side person who makes things very interesting and who at times has very interesting little views on American life and education. <laughs> interesting Kara. views. Interesting. Well, I think, like I, like I said to you, Gerard, my friend, I'm going to be very careful here. Interesting. No. I, you know, um, I have to say I haven't, okay, I'm a bad human. I haven't been like staying up at night and watching the DNC because number one, I fall asleep. And number two, like I'm screened out. Right. But, yep. but I have been, I've been YouTubing or CNN. I don't know what all these things are suddenly verbs, but I've been watching during the day. I've been watching the big keynotes and I've been, I've been enjoying it very much. Gerard, how about you? I only watched two speakers. Uh, Obama was one and yeah. Senator Kamala Harris. I watched with my wife and our two uh, younger daughters. So those were the only two that I watched. And so it was uh, good to hear what they had to say. Yeah, I, I thought it was really good to hear um, what they both had to say. I enjoyed it very much. I've also been just a little bit uh, distracted. Anyway. So, no, so I did see we had some celebrities talking about education, which is just I saw like photos of this in the news. Right. Which is one thing that it's probably a good thing I didn't watch too much because that's there's nothing that sort of drives me a little bit nuttier maybe than celebrities who are probably sending their kids to fancy private schools talking about um, supporting the system. But <laughs> the, the system, whatever that means, I think that means supporting the AFT. Did I just say that? But um, anyway, I, I but I have been um, I, I have found the keynotes, especially President Obama and and Senator Kamal Harris, very um I just thought they were great. So I'll say that. I'll leave it at that, Gerard. Well, as we're talking about the convention, uh, the, an article that I had a chance to read that I find uh, telling on several parts, uh, it's from the August 17th Washington Post. Uh, it's written by Chad Altman and Alex Spirier. Uh, I've had a chance to work with Chad. Uh, they're both at the Bellwether Education Partners, which is a great organization with really smart people. And the title of their article is, why Joe Biden shouldn't give up on public charter schools or standardized testing. And they write about a, uh, a document that was put together by several people who are part of a task force to look at a number of areas, of course, education being one. And Chad and Alex noted that the, the task force took a look at a 2009 study that identified that charter schools were no better on average than traditional public schools at the time. He said, but when the researchers looked at it again in 2013, guess what? They found a marked improvement in the quality of the charter sector. And in fact, they identified that charter schools are among the best uh, public schools in the country, independent of charter or non-charter status. 
And so they have a really interesting uh, conclusion, and it says political battles are especially intense this year. But in 2020 of all years, underprivileged students in our nation's public schools deserve a president who will fight for them. What's so interesting is that Biden was President Obama's vice president, and Obama was one of the most friendly public charter school proponents in the country. That's right. Uh, You saw a growth in charter schools in part because of the funds he invested in the U.S. Department of Education's uh, federal charter school fund, but also race to the top. I mean, look at just the millions of children, educators, families, social entrepreneurs, communities who benefited from that. How to move from pro-charter to at least possibly okay with charters. But that that's not the real point. If you take a look at the document that Alex and uh, Chad go into, listen to some of the things that the task force recommends. Number one, banning for-profit charter schools. Well, <laughs> less than 15% of all charter schools in the country are managed by for-profit. So you're talking about a smaller part, small part, even though they aren't quote-unquote for-profit profit charter schools. They also want to require charter schools to follow laws and regulations applicable to traditional public schools, or charter schools are traditional public schools. They are given some flexibility um, for things with higher in curriculum. That is, to get away from civil rights is actually to make uh, school-based decisions uh, matter at a quicker level. Having actually read all the charter school laws for an article I published four years ago, I can tell you that they're abiding by a lot. And then they also want to create a task force uh, to focus on charter school funding because it's always about the money. So <laughs> this is going to be very interesting um, as to go out. But it's good to see Chad and Alex. Uh, you know, but while I don't know their political leaning, I will assume that they uh, want to see Joe Biden do something because he's someone uh, they may support uh, very soon. Yeah. And let's let's see him do. I mean, so this is really tricky. Right. I mean, yep. President Obama, you're right, he was so strong on charter schools. He had secretaries of education who were strong on charter schools because you know what? They led with data. And yep. and you you cite data from like the infancy of the charter school sector until when we knew that not only that it was working and why was it working? It was working because when the schools didn't work, they closed especially right. in the states that were doing it well, right? And so how do you mm-hmm. get to schools? Well, you close the ones that aren't serving kids well. This idea that we should um, make the schools that are performing well more like districts just sings to me of this, well, you're doing so well. I don't like how that makes me look. So therefore, be more like me and let's everybody be mediocre because that's what kids need. And I have to say, unfortunately, that feels to be like the theme of the past six months, which is infuriating. I know it is to me. I think it is to you, to to many of us. Mm-hmm. I really would love to see, and you know, we've talked about this a little bit about on this podcast before, and much has been made of of Jill Biden and um and you know her and Joe's Joe Biden's kind of saying like you know I'm a union member is living with me in the White House sort of thing when I'm elected. I really hope that um, that President Obama's faith in his vice president could translate into us seeing. If he is elected, a president who really leads on education reform in the way that the Obama administration did in terms of very specifically its investment in and support of 
high quality charter schools. Um, you know, it was, I'm the chair of a, I'm the chair of a board of a charter school network that at the time was quite high performing. And it was race to the top that made Massachusetts, uh, initiate its last cap, uh, the cap lift on charter public schools. And that happened right. in a lot of places and mm-hmm. a lot of the great charter networks that have expanded all over the country to serve kids who are flourishing today happened because of those initiatives. Um, there were other things that happened that we can argue about, but that's a different podcast, right? Um, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. There's, um, I, I'm, I was happy to see this analysis. And I think that we need to keep talking about this very, very issue because boy, oh boy. I mean, when charter schools are linked to school reopening, you know, we won't, we won't go back to teach until you close the charter schools or to, I mean, give me a break. It's, I I try and be nice, Gerard, but sometimes I can't. (laughs) Well, you, you hold on to the faith and we will see. We will see. I know. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this like a year from now, right? Yep. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I've got um, uh, some data to describe here. So our friends at Education Next, who um, always bring us really great data-driven research, they're, they're out with a new poll. And I'm just going to highlight a couple things here. So the first one, I'll go because we were just talking about elections. Um, they have a new item in this poll. I believe this is something that they haven't polled before on populism and education policy. And this is just really, really interesting. So they posed a set of questions, our friends at Ag Next, and I'm quoting here, gauging the extent to which respondents agree with claims such as elected officials should always follow the will of the people. And they use this to identify the most and least populist respondents. And it was really interesting that um, both parties are would identify along these populist lines. So people who identify as both Republican and Democrat are identifying along populist lines a little bit more on the Republican side. So 56% of Republicans rank above the medium in, in median, sorry, in terms of populism, but so do 46% of Democrats. Um, and it says that it's a strong predictor. So whether or not you identify as a populist in, in, by this measure is a strong predictor of education policy views. So the more populist you are, the lower grade you give to public schools locally and nationally, and the greater approval you express, express for school choice. I thought that was fascinating, Gerard. And then the other piece of this that is fascinating but not surprising perhaps is a real increase in support for online education. So I believe that this poll was taken sort of at the end of spring when we uh-huh. were all in the midst of it. Yep. And, you know, some just really interesting findings about parents. And I think to me, it's sort of read as a willingness of parents to like support their schools and teachers that have to be online. Like, okay, we're going to make this work because Ednext had a previous poll that cited some pretty poor experiences with online education. Although I will say much more positive experiences in charter schools with online education to the previous story. But this is um, an interesting but not surprising sort of finding of the poll. Words matter a lot. And so when you said uh, populism, we tend to think something that's left. And yet Donald Trump won the presidency in part because he marketed himself as a populist, even though he's on the right. And to think that populists here with the Democrats and Republicans mean they support, uh, I guess, more school options since they don't like public schools as much seems counterintuitive because Biden, Harris and others, I would say, 
are at least populist leaning, if not populist in, in fact, and yet they're not supporting some of the things that many constituents are going to vote for them say is important. So that's the interesting use of, of populist. I, I think it goes both ways, but, you know, good to hear. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So well, I would encourage our listeners to dig into this um, this new Ednex poll because it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, so but coming up, Gerard, we're going to talk to just – uh, a, a really smart person, Julia Freeland Fisher. And um, I, every time I've heard her speak, I am intrigued and fascinated and, and I want to um, learn even more about what it is she's doing. So um, she will be coming up right after this. Great. And we're very happy to be back with Julia Freeland Fisher, who is the Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute. She leads a team that educates policymakers and community leaders on the power of disruptive innovation in the K-12 and higher education spheres through its research. Julia is the author of Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. She's published and spoken extensively on trends in the ed tech market, blended learning, competency-based education, and the future of schools. Julia's white papers and writing on disruptive innovations have appeared in, ma- in many national media outlets, including Education Next, Forbes, Entrepreneur.com, the Chicago Sun-Times, and CNN. Prior to joining the Institute, she worked at New Schools Venture Fund and has also served as an instructor in the Yale College Seminar Program. Julia holds a bachelor's degree from Princeton University and a JD from Yale Law School. Julia Freeland Fisher, welcome to The Learning Curve, and thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Kara. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. So um, we know that you've got a little one at home. And then on top of that, <laughs> here there is, um, you've been doing this work for a while, but um, your work, especially on blended learning and, and innovation in, in the sphere of education is certainly having a moment. So we're, we're really excited to talk to you, um, to talk to you about that. But you're doing well, everybody, everybody doing okay where you are? Yeah, absolutely. And I like to say whenever I'm on a live recording, I not only have an eight month old, I have two dogs and a very loud husband. So <laughs> well, the husband and the dogs are probably the biggest challenge, right? Absolutely. They're actually harder to train. I yeah. Find. All right. See, I told you Gerard's being very good today. So he's, he's going to be on mute for that. So, well, let's, I want to start by talking just a little bit about your background, Julia. So um, people know you as an accomplished reformer and you worked with the late professor Clayton Christensen and Michael Horn, with whom we've talked on this, on this show on disruptive innovation and schooling. I'm really curious as to how you became interested in this work, especially somebody with, with a law degree um, and, and what led you to, to writing your latest book, who, you know, yeah, absolutely. People always focus on the law degree. And I should say, just to be super candid up front, I didn't even take the bar exam. That's how sure I was that I did not want to be a lawyer. So we could get further into But a useful education that, but, nonetheless. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. So, um, well, well, like you said in your introduction, Kara, I started my career actually at New Schools Venture Fund, um, which for those who don't know, is a, is a venture philanthropy that invests in entrepreneurs in public education. And I arrived there um, not really knowing what I was getting into, to be totally honest. And it was, it was truly uh, baptism by fire in, in the intersection of innovation policy and education reform. So I started there in 2007, uh, which was uh, right before 
the Obama administration appointed Arne Duncan as the Secretary of Education, which really ushered in an era not just of sort of philanthropy um, powered and fueled entrepreneurship and education, but even policy that started to uh, try and direct, I think, more funds uh, explicitly into innovation. Um, and it was really exciting work. Uh, and I'll say, but it also raised sort of questions for me that I think have led me to where I am today at the Christensen Institute, where I've been working for uh, just about seven years, actually. Um, and the questions I think were that, and I'm curious, Karen Gerard, if this resonates with you, is that we use this term innovation a lot in education, perhaps ad nauseum, yeah. and it and it can be sort of code for trial and error. Um, and that can even be data-driven trial and error, meaning that it, data-driven practices from the classroom all the way up to the boardroom and forming what we're trying. Um, but I think what, what, what led me to Clay Christensen and Michael Horn's work was really a theory of innovation, something beyond trial and error that could lead to some more predictability around what we were trying and what we thought would scale um, and why. Uh, and so that that sort of led me here to the Institute. Um, and, and those who have heard of Clay Christensen, uh, he's best known for coining the term disruptive innovation, which sounds like blow up the whole system. <laughs> um, but but really, the, the term disruption and the theory of disruption is a is a fairly rigorous frame around a theory of competition and which innovations scale and why. And um, hopefully you can talk more about this. But one of the things that has happened over and over again, I think, in education reform is finding really bright spots of, of innovation, but having trouble figuring out how to leverage those into sort of the mainstream or the core of public education. Um, and so, so it's been exciting to have a theory and a frame to look at um, how that might happen over time. I want to pick that up for a second, Julie, because something you said to me just really resonated. I have to share that yesterday um, in the evening, I was taking my children on a hike and we drove past um, an innovation school. I won't mm. name which one. Uh, as listeners know, I'm here in the, um, in the Boston area. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I know for a fact there is nothing innovative <laughs> about, about this school. And this comes from, I think, so you, you rightly explain, you know, that innovation, it's sort of, it's a loaded word on a number of levels. Um, and some folks, of course, cringe at this notion that we have trial and error, especially in certain communities around, you know, education. But I like this idea that you're saying innovation in, in your view could could really think help us think about things that could be successfully scaled um, so that they become, you know, commonplace things that work for kids. Correct me if I've, if I've not explained that the right way. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about innovations that you've seen that you think either have been scaled well or could be or should be scaled? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right on in terms of that focus on scale. And just to, to take a small wonky detour into disruptive innovation theory, I promise it will be brief. Um, disruption is really a theory of how products and services become radically more affordable and accessible. And I think... Um, no more than this very moment today during the pandemic is it more real that unfortunately sort of high quality learning and high quality care and engaging learning and care have sometimes felt like they have to be luxury goods as opposed to widely affordable and accessible. So that's mm. really like where I would, I would start this conversation. I think the sort of climate around the debates about learning pods is putting that front and center, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um and so 
so this idea of like what scales and why, um, a part of it has to do with technology. Uh, and, and we can talk about that. A part of it has to do with technology because all disruptive innovations have technological enablers that allow them to scale more affordably um, at a sort of lower marginal cost than if that technology were absent. And for that reason, we pay a lot of attention to the edtech market, not because we think it's a silver bullet, but because we think it's about affordable scale. Um, and so one of the things that has absolutely scaled, it's a very strange moment to be having this conversation, but that has scaled dramatically over the past decade is online learning. Now it hasn't scaled to sort of solve the entire enterprise of teaching and learning. It hasn't scaled to the highest needs areas where internet connectivity is still an enormous barrier, but it has scaled in terms of reach into the K-12 classroom and the post-secondary classroom as a mechanism for delivering some content, which is what we would call sort of blended learning. So you may still have a teacher, you may still have a school building, although maybe not right now. You may still have a classroom, you may still have pens and paper, right? <laughs> All the trappings of what you might call traditional, but we've seen a radical infusion of technology to deliver some content. And that has real bearing on what we could potentially see down the line um, in terms of teachers actually being freed up to do more one-on-one -on -one small group instruction, um, students being freed up to move at more flexible paces, uh, learners of all ages being able to actually engage in experiential learning outside of the classroom because you don't actually have to be inside of the classroom for learning to happen um, at a, on a lockstep schedule. So I think that's a lot of the potential. There's We could talk about why the market hasn't fully realized that potential, but um, even pre-COVID-19, we, we saw an immense scale in that online learning market. That's, a, that's an amazing point. And actually, you're, you're really making me think here. My three kids attend a, a Montessori school, even my older mm. children. And um, the first reaction of the teachers was, there's no way we can do this online sort of a thing. <laughs> and yeah. they actually ended up doing it really, really well. And in part because they were, I think, to the point you've just made, they were already leveraging some tech in the classroom that I don't think they thought about too much. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a really fascinating point. I would love to read more about that on Twitter, Julia, than, than some of the stuff we're reading lately. <laughs> um, I want to, because we have you, I, I really want to ask you a little bit about, um, take a little bit of a, a different tact here and, and talk about your work around um, access to professional networks, student access to professional networks. And one of the things that we've been, Gerard and I have been talking about is, you know, um, how do you, your thoughts around um, advancing social mobility, academic and professional success for all students, and what can policymakers think about in terms of helping poor and minority students especially access the kind of networks that, um, that other students simply have because they were born into it? Sure. So, so just taking a step back for a sec, because this actually connects to the conversation we were just having earlier on online learning. When I joined the Christensen Institute, really our bread and butter was studying the rise of online and blended learning. And so I was looking at that, that slice of the ed tech market. And I had this lurking suspicion that like, we weren't actually telling the whole story of the potential of technology in education because in our adult lives, um, people can't tell, but we're doing this interview on Skype. We're constantly using technology to connect with one another. But if you looked five years ago at the mainstream ed tech market, it was all about content delivery and assessment and productivity tools and very, very little about using technology for actually one of the things it's best at, which is to overcome geography, time, and cost barriers to connect people. 
Um, and so ironically, we have this like very insular concept of what a school building looks like, even though we could be using technology to network students much more proactively. So that's where all of my research on sort of access to networks started. It started as a technology question. It grew over time into a broader question of what does it look like for schools to take more seriously the fact that we know that social capital and access to who, like who students know is a part of the opportunity equation. Um, an estimated half of jobs come through personal connections. And if you look at LinkedIn data, which skews more towards knowledge economy jobs, that number goes up to 80% coming through referrals. Um, uh, referrals and sort of access to information about jobs that may not have even been posted. So we have this like data that tells us opportunity is social. And yet, if you think about some of the traditional sort of um, rhetoric and policy incentives in the education space, we are hammering away exclusively at the achievement gap and not paying attention to relationship gaps. Um, and so, Kara, as you pointed out, students inherit different networks. That's sort of the term we use in our, our research, that we all possess different inherited networks. And that's neither like good nor bad, but they are limited. And we know that young people whose parents did not go to college are disproportionately less networked into the knowledge economy in terms of their inherited networks. They're half as likely to know CEOs, professors, Congress people. If you want to know a congressperson in 2020, it's a separate conversation <laughs> for a different podcast. But, um, we, you know, if we're going to say that schools are an engine for social mobility, we need to be having a conversation about those data points alongside academic achievement. This is by no means saying who you know matters, what you know doesn't matter. Um, and so that's a, sorry, very verbose sort of on-ramp into your original question of like, what should we be doing? Couple quick like things, and then we can go deeper in anything that you guys are interested in. Um, one is around having a more robust and rigorous conversation about student support networks. You guys know all too well, I'm sure, that sort of student supports is this like behemoth category in education policy right now that is like mm -hmm. ill-defined dollars that are set aside for student supports are used on all sorts of fronts, right? Um, not in a particularly systematic way. And we're, as a result, you don't necessarily have school systems equipped to do what all of the developmental research would tell us, which is every young person needs to be surrounded by a web of support to develop helpfully. So that's sort of the like Maslow's hierarchy base minimum. Um, and some states have actually really stepped up. Washington, Ohio, uh, where you are, Kara, Massachusetts, have all actually earmarked dollars specifically for what's called integrated student supports, which is in some ways the sort of best in class of schools partnering with uh, local, regional, and state agencies to provide those supports for students. But um, that's one very concrete state policy. Then as you sort of move up the pipeline or up even Maslow's hierarchy in terms of the sorts of professional networks young people need, there's obviously like promising practices around work-based learning, internship-based learning, career exposure that often are about um, putting students in contact with people in the professional world, but run into this repeat problem of relegating relationships as inputs to skill development rather than outcomes in their own right. And so what we think sort of policymakers and frankly practitioners should be thinking about is as you think about pathways into career exploration, career experience, internships, and even jobs for young people, how are you architecting those pathways so that the definition of quality is not just this young person learned a subset of STEM skills or soft skills, but also this young person accrued a network that was otherwise out of his or her reach? 
Joey, I'm so glad you mentioned the word network. Um, where I work at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation in Charlottesville, um, the founder of our institute is named Dr. James Hunter, and he's a professor of uh, sociology, religion, and social thought. And he has said that if you look at change through time, guess what takes place? You need to have a network uh, mm-hmm. to do that. So, so glad you mentioned that within the education standpoint. You know, you studied uh, comparative literature at Princeton and have a law degree from Yale. And those two uh, things typically aren't uh, conventional pathways to K-12 public education policy. I should say my wife has a degree in foreign affairs and a law degree from Harvard, and she's in a K-12 policy. So I understand what can happen. <laughs> but, you know, from you and the work that you're doing, what lessons did you draw from your liberal arts education and studying law that can give all of us fresh insights into how best to reform American education? Sure, yeah. I like this question, but it's like a stressful one. So I, I'll say, like, <laughs> first and foremost, comparative literature, everyone's like, what the heck is that? What were you, what were you doing for four years? But, you know, a, a lot of it was writing and synthesizing, and that's still my day job, miraculously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think that was actually incredibly transferable. And I actually had a mentor, um, Julie Makuda, who worked at New School's Venture Fund and actually hired me there. And when I was in law school, sort of flailing about wondering what the heck I was going to do next, I asked her basically permission, like, are there jobs in education where you can synthesize? And she sort of urged me to look at the think tank space. So that's like a very uh, literal Mm skill set um, that I think I've brought to my work. And then sort of on the law and policy front, you know, I, I partly went to law school because I felt like I was in a lot of education policy conversations where you would sort of look at a... Um, we were still doing death by PowerPoint back in 2008, 2009, but you would look at a PowerPoint presentation that would have a lot of um, ambitious ideas for policy, but very short on the details and mechanics of how those policies would actually be uh, written and and sort of effectively implemented and what the boundaries around that would be. So um, that's sort of the spirit in which I went to law school. I will say for anyone listening who who reads case law regularly, which is maybe only Gerard's wife and myself. Uh, (laughs) But uh, when you read case law, there's a kind of depressing reality, which is our laws and our legal, our our sort of decisions are based on precedent, right? So you read a lot about historical cases and then you get to the last paragraph typically of a decision and that's where policy comes in. And that's where sort of the possibilities of if policy were to do X, Y, Z, then the world might look different or then the plaintiff might have a different outcome. Um, and that was sort of humbling to find out that, that that's where policy fits, right? It's sort of the around the corner <laughs> piece of our legal system, hopefully, uh, where we can make progress. And so I think um, take that one step further as sort of a, a student of innovation theory, a lot of innovation precedes policy, right? It happens first and it shows us what's possible. And so I think I kind of came out of law school wanting to continue to be in that innovation space, but be able to position innovation so that it could inform policy uh, down the line, which is maybe Pollyanna-ish, but at least how I think about my work. No, that's actually smart uh, thinking about it because, yeah, comparative literature is reading a lot and and synthesizing, and that's so much of policy. It's worth noting, since we are in a presidential election uh, year, that of the 11 U.S. secretaries of education, five at least, have had a law degree. 
And hmm. so, uh, you, yep. So at some point in life, we should talk about you as secretary of education. We'll, we'll save that. <laughs> for the we'll take it. We'll go for that. <laughs> so here's another question, you know, in your view, what are the best K-12 education curricula, uh, curricula materials that can help high schoolers be marketable for higher education and for the workforce while also introducing them to a wider world of understanding the importance of networks? Yeah, love this question. And I actually think it's an emerging question in the field, like just to give you a sense of where this is in the kind of um, innovation conversation. Literally last week, someone from a venture capital, an education venture capital firm called me up and was like, how do we start funding the next curriculum around social capital and network development? So this is like a cutting edge question that you're asking. I don't know if you knew how cutting edge it was. Um, but here's a couple of factors to consider. And then I'll talk about examples that I think are really promising. We actually last year um, did a survey of youth serving organizations that had some orientation around building or brokering networks for young people, whether that was um, youth employment organizations or sort of, again, career exploration uh, and even some college success organizations, but that are really focused on social capital outcomes for young people. And over 80% of them were creating their own curriculum, which is actually like a profound market failure, potentially, right? And, and shows that there's not sort of a best in class curriculum yet. Um, now, that said, we have been studying um, over the past few years models that we think are actually really on the right track. And it's typically models that are not just sort of teaching a curriculum around career readiness uh, more broadly or a, a building a network more specifically, but that are actually embedding that curriculum or those lessons in experiences where students are, them, are authentically growing their network. So some concrete examples of that um, is the CAPS network out of uh, Kansas City. This is a, originated from a high school outside of Kansas City and is now a network throughout the United States that does what they call profession-based learning. If you guys want one more piece of jargon to add to your teaching and learning list, <laughs> but profession-based learning, uh, sort of a, a close cousin to project-based learning, is about students going and uh, doing projects with local employers um, and, and sort of by definition working along so that, alongside those employers and getting real-world feedback. Um, Another example that we've looked at that I think is really interesting is Da Vinci Extension, which is a, a, a part of a charter school network down in LA um, that is a fifth year high school experience where students are engaging in client projects. They've really shrunk what was otherwise a highly inefficient, hard to scale internship-based learning model down to six weeks projects that students are engaging uh, with clients, getting soft skills training from DVX staff while they're doing that but they're, they're in an actual authentic work environment. It's not sort of a simulation, if that makes sense. Um, and then the last one going down sort of into more the K-8 space, um, a group out in San Diego, outside of San Diego, I should say, in, in Cajon Valley School District um, has launched something called the World of Work. Um, and that's a whole curriculum around starting in kindergarten, having young, young people and learners understand what jobs are, uh, which most of us don't learn uh, in school, and also interacting through a series of video chats called Meet a Pro sessions, where they're actually interacting online with professionals from a whole host of industries. Um, so again, they are learning about the world of work and the power of a network, but they are also actively engaged with people that they might not otherwise meet. 
Um, last thing I'll say there, because I am just passionate about this point, uh, is that Cajon Valley is doing a really smart thing, which I think a lot of school districts could do overnight, even if they didn't want to adopt something as elaborate of, as everything I just described, which is they're starting to leverage parents as those professionals. Um, and, and like we're in a moment of parent engagement being mm-hmm. sort of front and center as a an Achilles heel of um, traditional school systems. And part of that is because we haven't created meaningful slots in the school day or the school year where parents are authentically engaging, not just with their own kids, but other people's children um, within the school district. And I think this is one place where that actually could have some real traction looking ahead. There's something you just said that uh, really piqued another question and it's about philanthropy. Uh, When we think of K-12 policy, we think primarily of governmental institutions, federal, state, and local. But philanthropy philanthropy plays a really big role in shaping how we either implement policy or how policy is even shaped. What are your thoughts about uh, how that works in in the real world? How, How the philanthropy piece works in the real world? Yeah. Yeah, well, so I'll say, maybe I'll make this specific to our work on social capital and networks. I mean, part of our work right now and for the past few years, not in the interest of just funding our own research, but in the interest of really building this field, has been trying to help um, funders be sort of candid about this blind spot of networks and social capital. And mm-hmm. um and I'll just be really candid about what I do. It sounds maybe manipulative, but it's actually a very authentic and powerful exercise. I typically ask people, program officers, to reflect on who helped them get where they are today, how they got this job or the job before it. Um, and very quickly, um, a lot of people working in philanthropy have very strong networks, right? It's a little bit of the inside baseball of, of that space. And I don't say that as a critique, just as a sort of um, observation. And, and I think once people are candid about how they got to where they are, they can revisit some of the assumptions they're bringing to systems design um, and the nudges that they're trying to affect in both policy and practice. Um, and so uh, that's, that's maybe a sort of um, one step removed from where philanthropy intersects with policy. But I think it's, gra- it's, it's um, helping people to revisit some of the like technocrat strategies <laughs> that uh, come from a very well-intentioned place, but don't always reflect the reality and lived experiences of how people actually are socially mobile and gain access to opportunity in our country. Thank you so much. Wow. And I think that that's like, we'll, we'll wait for your next book on that topic, maybe reflecting <laughs> on the last 20 years of education policy and, and, and how it got there, right? Because that is, that's a fascinating take. Thank you very much. And Gerard, great, great question, my friend. Um, Julia, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I know like I'm going to walk away and go do, um, go reread some things and do, do, do a little more reading after spending this time with you, because it has been a really fascinating, um, you know, half hour or so. So thanks for, thanks for spending it with us. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. I know I'm verbose, but I just get excited about this no, topic. It's good stuff. So we love, we love the it. passion. We love, you got to bring the passion on the learning curve. <laughs> so, and you did. Thank you very, very much. So my tweet of the week comes from the August 17th tweet from NBC News. Tuesday marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, when the words, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged, dot, 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 on account of sex, were added to the Constitution. 
a hundred years ago, we acknowledged last night on television uh, the nomination of Senator Kamala Harris uh, as the first African-American uh, or first black, first Indian, uh, first woman on the Democratic ticket. And to think that 100 years ago, this not only would have been impossible, but for some people would be considered a sin uh, because of gender alone. And to think that today we have a number of governors uh, who are women. We have a number of mayors. We have a number of police chiefs, superintendents. We have a number of CEOs of Fortune 500 corporations, as well as entrepreneurs and small business owners who today are in uh, positions, even though there's an electoral vote, Yes, CEOs are voted by people who are in, uh, in, in public life, but they do elect the people who, in fact, set policies, procedures and provide grants and tax benefits to businesses to move to cities. So 100 years, we've seen a lot of progress. Uh, surely there's uh, more room to grow, but it's something that we should celebrate. And I would definitely go back and say, take a look at what a group of courageous women had to go through, uh, everything from lit literally fist fighting with men. Um, having to pull men out of meetings to have them to vote. It was tough. And so today, a number of men and women have benefited from uh, the passage of the 19th Amendment. And in a presidential season, with all the partisanship and things that are going on, it's just nice every now and then to take a break, exhale, and celebrate how far we've come as relates uh, to women in the United States and the role the vote has played in bringing us closer to a perfect union. I, yes. Yes. And let's let's think about this important part of our history and and think about how it resonates today. So I agree. We've come a long way. I also um, and Gerard, you poor man, I've been texting you about this, talking to you about this. I also think to the point that you've just made, um, we should also be really reflective about how how much further we have to go to see Kamala Harris you know, uh, up on that stage um, and all of the firsts that she represents is is an amazing thing. It's an amazing feat. And we had, you know, um, last election cycle, uh, the first female candidate for president, mm -hmm. any major party, huge, huge gains. I also reflect as the um, maybe sometimes <laughs> stressed out. OK, no, all the time stressed out working mother of three and me about all of the um, all of the women in this country who they have the right to vote, but they still aren't necessarily receiving equal pay for equal work um, for, for whatever reason, whether it's personal circumstance or just the way mm -hmm. we have evolved as a culture, you know, taking on um, still a lot at home while also being out in the workforce. Um, yep. And it's, it's a big deal. And it's in this moment too, I think it's a lot of women, we're all feeling it acutely. Um, but I think a lot has been eloquently written about the extent to which women are feeling it quite acutely. Um, so keeping that in mind though, I have to say, I do really appreciate this moment to think about this very special anniversary, especially in such an important election year. So. All right. Well, Gerard, next week, we've got another bang up guest. I don't know how Pioneer keeps doing this. We, we could, I, This is like one of the coolest hours of the week that we get to talk to such smart people, right? Yep. Um, we're, we will be speaking with Devery Anderson, the author of Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. So really looking forward to that conversation. And also, my friend, looking forward to spending another hour with you next week. I look forward to it. Have a good one.